0: For me, as we continue looking at the awakening that must come, the only hope I believe for our land, uh, we come to a very important passage of scripture. and For me, one of the most moving prophetic biographies given in scripture itself, uh, one of the absolute most poignant and painful is the story of the prophet Hosea. While there's been debate through a lot of centuries how we should interpret and understand this passage, everything from centuries ago that it's an allegory or it's a metaphor, uh, I believe, I'm among those who believe, that the chapters 1 and 3 that give his biography involves historical events. Historical events that could have broken anybody. God told his prophet to Mary a woman of promiscuity, and her name was Gomer. He told him, you will have children with her. And when his first child, a boy, was born, he was told to name him Jezreel, which is named after a site where a massacre took place under the reign of King Yehu. And God was saying, judgment will come upon Israel because of that massacre. And then later, a daughter was born to him, lo Ruhama, which means not pitied, because God told his prophet that he was going to disavow his relationship with the people of Israel because of their sin. And finally, a third son is born, what may be the most painful name of all, lo Ami. And the name Loami literally means not mine. Because God was saying the people of Israel were no longer going to be his children because of their sin. There will not be any pity for them. There will not be any compassion for them. Judgment is coming. They don't belong to him anymore. But the story continues because Gomer returned to her life of promiscuity. She left Hosea and went to live with another man. And then God did the absolutely unthinkable for most of us. He tells Hosea, I want you to go and take her back into your home. And partially out of obedience to God and partially because I believe Hosea, with everything that had gone on, I believe that Hosea had formed a bond of love with Gomer. He went. And he paid a price to get her to come back home. And when he got her home, he set up a list of strict boundaries. These are the things that must happen if you are to remain with me. And Then in that third chapter, God let uh, Hosea know that Israel would one day seek the Lord's favor again. Now, throughout Hosea's story, he saw played out the relationship between a holy God and an unfaithful people. And many people have wondered, myself included, how much pain it caused Hosea every time he called out his children's names. Every time he heard them called. Essentially, their names were judgments coming. No compassion. Not mine. And They must have crushed him. It must have broken his heart. Now, Hosea's life story reflected a God whose people were committing spiritual adultery and just didn't care. There had been other prophets. Hosea was a contemporary of Amos. Others had come And spoken the word of God. And warned of judgment. And Israel said. We're going to do what we want to do. And it shows the length. His story. God would take to discipline his people. In order to bring them home. This is the story of a broken heart. Isaiah's heart is broken. And in the book of Hosea, when you read some of the words of God, it's clear that his heart is affected. In the 11th chapter, he says, I brought Israel out of Egypt, and they don't know me. When they were a child, I was the one who essentially picked them up when they fell. I was the one who taught them how to walk. I was the one who held them tight, and they don't know me. A broken heart and a pain. Well, we hear an incredible note of hope. Most of the book of Hosea is about judgment. But chapters 11 talk about the love of God and chapter 14 talks about the possibility of what would happen. If Israel listened to their God. When Hosea told his people, Return to the Lord. We will be looking at Hosea 14, 1 through 4 this morning. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. I want you to listen carefully to what he says. And please note, when we get to verse 4, it is now God speaking in response to the words. That Israel should bring to him. So hear the word of the Lord. Israel, return to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled in your iniquity. Take words of repentance with you. And return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our iniquity and accept what is good. So that we may repay you with praise from our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will no longer proclaim our gods to the work of our hands. For the fatherless receives compassion in you. And now God said, I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them. For my anger will have turned from him. Now in our text, Hosea gave a detailed observation. Of what the repentance Israel needed to experience would look like. He gave a detailed description of what had to happen in their turn back to God. And we need to listen. We need to hear this with everything within us. Because I believe the awakening that must come. And folks, you, have, you know this. You know that I believe that it is the one hope for this land. And for the people of God here. And the awakening that must come will not happen without repentance. It's simply not going to. But here's the problem. How do we know the difference between repentance and being sorry we got caught? How do we know when we have really turned back to God Well, in our text, we're going to see several characteristics of what real repentance looks like, what it needed to look like for Israel, and what needs to happen in our lives. So let's jump in to these characteristics. And the very first thing, real repentance involves real awareness of sin. Now, we all in this congregation, most of us here would freely say, well, I believe in sin. But we don't always look at it the way God is calling us to see it. We need to really understand its significance. And when you look at Hosea, Hosea was calling upon his people to recognize sin for what it truly was. And Natalie keyed in. She read from the ESV. I chose to read from the CSV today because there are some translations that just simply use the word sins. I think we missed something there. Hosea is using the most comprehensive word in his vocabulary for sin. Iniquity. And just to let you know, because this may help you remember it, in Hebrew, it's avon. I would ask if anyone has ever sold avon, but... uh, they did not get their name from the word iniquity. But that might help you remember iniquity. And it is defined as a deed that incurs guilt or punishment that is due to guilt. And its basic meaning in its root is found in Psalm 38.6 when the psalmist says that he was bent over in pain. He was bowed down in pain. That's the basic idea behind the root. That gave birth to this word. bow down. You see iniquity. Involves a twisting. A turning. A bent away from God. It is that which is in us. That. at, at, At one point in our lives. Given the choice. Between yes to God. And no to God. Our hearts say no. It is that bent in us. And it sometimes refers in the Bible to the deed. And sometimes in the Bible it's used to describe the consequence of the deed. But listen, he says, you need to come to God because you have stumbled in your iniquity. Now that word stumble emerges here, very important for us, because it shows what sin is. Sin is not just isolated acts. And that's the way we tend to think of it. But there is a twist in sin and there is a bending and there is a turn which basically says when sin is part of our lives, it alters us. It changes us. It moves us. And that which we were created with the, the image of, and likeness of God, that's part of our creation Because of sin, it is marred. Because of sin, it is broken. And we are not what we are called to be. When Hosea talks about sin in his book, he always refers to it as offenses that are against a holy God that ultimately will bring guilt and punishment. The fact that he uses the word stumble... Uh, It's used quite a bit in the Bible. And it usually has references to just misfortune. You stumble in life. But frequently, and here, it is used to talk about the divine judgment of God. And this word is used no less than six times in the book of Hosea. Always talking about your sin, your guilt, that has caused you to fall away from what God wants. And it's going to cause you to move into the realm of judgment. So what does this mean for us? How do we grab hold of this? How does it make sense? Friends, we mustn't fall into the trap of seeing sin as a mistake. It's just a little thing. It's just a problem. We messed up. Carl Minninger was a psychiatrist from Kansas. And he made quite a name for himself in the field of psychiatry. He started a clinic that became quite famous. But in the 70s, he wrote a very unusual book for a psychiatrist to pen. The title of the book is Whatever Became of Sin. Whatever Became of Sin. Now, he was a believer. He was a Presbyterian. But he was not a preacher. He was not an evangelist. And no one would have expected a psychiatrist to write about sin. Because in his book, he points out that there was a disappearance of sin in the mindset of 20th century human beings in Western societies. And they want to talk about sin. And when it came to wrongdoing, they defined it, well, it's crime. It is a symptom of an illness. It is collective irresponsibility. You know, things like War and slavery and corporations that built millions out of an unsuspecting uh, base. It talks about even attacks on uh, this world in which we live, the environment. He says that's the way we have come to look at sin. But Menninger writes a book and he's not just writing it to preachers. In his book, He called on pastors, teachers, physicians, lawyers and judges, police, the media, and statesmen to work for the recovery of sin as moral guilt. He was saying, this is tearing the fabric of our society apart. And we need to understand that wrongdoing is morally wrong. And there has to be a cure that can't be found in and of ourselves. Walter Wengerin, in an article on Reflections, stated what I know in my life to be so very true. My denial of my sin protects, preserves, perpetuates that sin. Ugliness in me while I live in illusions, can only grow uglier. When I'm refusing to see sin for what it is, it warps me. And my favorite Southern Baptist of all time, theologian of all times, I've mentioned his name and talked about him before, W.T. Connor, in his systematic theology, Christian doctrine, describes several facts about sin that we need to understand. He says, first of all, sin alienates from God. Now, for those of us who are children of the living God, this doesn't mean that God kicks us out of the family. But it does mean, as His children, the moment we allow sin to grow within our lives, our fellowship with God is marred. Our ability to know Him, our ability to love Him, our ability to recognize His love is all diminished. And there becomes a wedge between us. He goes on to say that sin brings moral and spiritual degradation. And again, have you ever noticed how we're never quite satisfied with what Natalie called the little sins? They always lead to bigger. And we can look at that in a lot of different areas of life. But it does change us. It bends us further and further away from God. And as a result, sin causes Social disruption. Now I'm about to say something that's very unpopular in our world today, but I need you to really hear it because it's not just unpopular with the world. Sin causes social disruption. Have you stopped to wonder why is our nation so messed up? Why is there so much chaos? Why so much hatred and anger? Why so much bitterness? Why so much crime? All these Folks, I can tell you, sin, sin is at the heart of what's going on in our land today. Now, here's where it's not going to be popular with you. Because it's not just the sin of those people. It's our sin as well. As a body of Christ, I can start showing you my My minor is church history. I can start showing you that in the 60's going into the 70's and 80's there was a move in the body of Christ that was absolutely wrong. As churches began to look at professional ministers as the one who do the ministry and the lay people we get to come and listen. And there were ministers who really like that. There there are preachers out there who like being the boss. And we've lost sight of what God has called us to do. We've lost sight of what God has called us to be. And so there is a burden on us. And I've shared with you, back when we were looking at Habakkuk and as we looked at John, folks, the Word of God, Peter tells us, judgment begins in the house of God. This world is messed up because of sin. And as such, sin produces suffering. I don't believe in anything like a private sin. Because even if you never find out what I do, it affects our relationship. And people are hurt when we lose sight of what God wants us to be. Ultimately, Connor said, sin causes death, produces death. And we do know, and Natalie quoted, uh, Romans 3, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. I want you to notice in that passage, Paul is comparing eternal life, I believe, to eternal death. And he's saying, ultimately, for those who are lost, who refuse to hear God, it brings separation from God. But Paul also says in Galatians, the sixth chapter, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. And I believe that as children of the living God, when we walk out of the will of God, there comes a point in time, if we continue to be obstinate and hard headed, God will go to whatever drastic measures must be to keep us from dragging his name into the mud. So what am I saying? We need to fully embrace the truth of sin as a crippling problem. If we fail to take sin seriously, we will fail in our call for God. Just pure and simple, folks. Because if I don't take sin seriously, I will never become the witness that Christ has called me to be. I will not be able to do the ministry of reconciliation that Paul tells the Corinthian church, this is what God has given His church. The ministry of reconciliation. I won't do that. I won't be able to understand His love. I won't be able to walk with Him the way I should. As painful as it may seem, we have got to acknowledge sin is serious. And as the people of God, we need to know that. Well, Hosea gives us another characteristic that grows out of a recognition of how serious it is when he lets us know that real repentance involves words. Real repentance involves words. Now, I need you to really listen with both ears and your heart. Because I'm not just talking about a quick I'm sorry. There's something more meaningful here that Hosea is talking about. And when we look at him, very interestingly, this prophet who's just talked about judgment, Hosea laid out an elaborate use of words in the repentance Israel needed. Folks, he gets very detailed, doesn't he? And the prophet said, you need to return to the Lord your God and bring words of repentance with you. Now, what did he mean? Well, a general consensus is his phrase, bring words of repentance, is kind of shorthand. Because Hosea is saying, bring these words of repentance with you. The demonstrative of these was probably dropped just because of the metrical form of the text. But what Hosea is apparently saying, when you come to God, Bring these words along. Some have suggested he was writing a liturgical prayer that had to be prayed from the heart. Now, there is evidence in the text that this is true. Bring words of repentance. Say to him, and then he gives the words. So Hosea is saying you need to bring these words spoken out of your heart to God. Now what are the words? A call for forgiveness. Forgive all our iniquity. They are not playing games. They are not to excuse. We are bent against you, God. We have moved away from you. We need to take you to take all of that away from us. Forgive us. And then they have a plea. Accept what is good. Now the interesting thing, they're not saying accept us because we're a good bunch of people. There's nothing good in them. They are idolaters. They are spiritual adulterers. They have misused and abused one another. They are far from good. But the action of coming back to God, the action of coming back to their Lord, that was good. So they're basically saying, God, forgive us and please receive this act of repentance and let it change us. Then they said, when that happens, we will bring the ESV. I'm glad Natalie read from that. Uh, when it talks about the bulls, the, uh, the vows of our lips. ESV and the King James, you both use that term. And there's a lot of discussion. And most modern translations have opted for a different text that talks about the our lips, the fruit of our lips. Praise from our lips. And the emphasis seems to be what David says in Psalm 51, you don't want the sacrifices of bulls. You want the sacrifice of a contrite heart. And our words are showing you that we are contrite, and as you forgive us, we will result in our praise for you, our love for you. Then they turn away from worldly help. Assyria will not help us. We will not ride on horses. Now, if any of you love riding horseback, there's nothing wrong with it. They're making reference to war horses. Assyria will actually be the country that destroys Israel. And war horses represent a concept that the military might will keep us safe from all harm. I grew up in a military home. I grew up in the Cold War. I bought into the concept that a strong uh, defense was a strong offense. And I just, I accepted the arms from Ares. But folks, if we ever thought our military might would keep us safe, we need to hear the psalmist. Psalm 20, 7-9. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Folks, I'm not arguing against a strong military in a church that is populated with military folks. That would be crazy. Uh, But what I am saying is, we cannot rely on worldly measures to save us, protect us as a country perhaps, but to change us to what God wants us to be known. It won't happen. That has to come from God. And then, out of the blue, all everything we've looked at before, Hosea says, say, okay, we're not going to do this, but we are going to do this. And then he just drops it all off with a recognition. For the fatherless receive compassion in you. I'll deal with that in just a minute. Now, let's be clear. God did not need Israel's Word. God didn't have to be talked into loving them. He didn't have to be talked into forgiving them. But Israel desperately needed to be real about their sin. Israel needed to bring very specific words to God that outlined what was wrong. When they came in their prayer of repentance, they needed to be real and honest. Words of real repentance come from the depths of our hearts. When we are really repentant. And I've shared with you before, uh, every time I apologized to my sisters growing up as a child, to the best of my recollection, I never meant it. What I meant was, I'm sorry mom caught I'm sorry Dad caught me, and now I'm having to tell you I'm sorry. Now, most of you will recognize that because I'm pretty sure I'm not the only person who's thought that way. But we also need to acknowledge this is not just a child's mentality. Folks, have you noticed how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds it seems of public apologies are being made right now? Everywhere you look, somebody's now... Well, I'm sorry, I didn't really mean it. And why are they saying it? Because someone dug up a video. Someone dug up a picture. Someone dug up an email. And now I've got to do spin control. I've got to try to worm my way out of this. We have a really huge possibility of just not acknowledging. But, you and I look at the heartache in the book of Hosea. When We look at a man whose life was torn apart by sin. And we look at a God who says, my own child doesn't know me. How can we take sin lightly? And Surely we've got to say more than I'm sorry we're caught. 1973, Gary S. Pax That's known in Christian circles for his song. He was there all the time. sang the song, I wonder if God cries when we do the things we do. Do love drops fill his eyes because he loves us oh so true? Sometimes I feel such hurt when I try to realize even though he's God, I wonder if God cries. I wonder if God cries. Is his heart filled with pain? Does he bow and weep when we damn his holy name? I would like, wish I could see him. For the world apologize, even though he's God. I wonder if God cries. Maybe time will tell when we reach that distant shore with all his children home. Maybe God will cry no more. Even though he's God. I wonder if God cries. You and I, desperately, we need to see that our words cannot be meaningless platitudes. I love the word platitude because it's, it's an important word. Basically, it's defined as a remark or statement, usually with a moral content that has basically an expression that has become meaningless. It is dull. Why? Because we say it too much. And that defines. I think very vividly what happens with us. How many times in our lives when we have gone astray, when we've messed up, when we have fallen to our sin, we've given in to temptation, how many times have we excused ourselves? Yeah, I messed up, but nobody's perfect. How many times have we messed up and our reply is, I'm only human. Now, I agree, everybody in this room is human. But if you're a child of the living God, there is another element in your life. And it is God Almighty who has saved you, who is in the process of changing you, whose Holy Spirit is dwelling within. And every time I use one of those excuses or rationalizations, I cheapen what God has done for me. It's time we get real with God. It's time... Our sin breaks our hearts because of what we have caused God in the words of Haxton and Hosea when we stumble so. Well, the reason all of this makes sense, the reason all of this is worthwhile is a final characteristic. Real repentance involves the grace of God. It involves God's grace. This isn't just something we do in and of ourselves. And Hosea makes an interesting observation within his text. And what he is saying to his people is that orphaned Israel had hope in the compassion of the Lord. I want to play this out for you. Remember at one point I told you that God said by the naming of Hosea's son, Israel is not mine. They have gone too far. They have broken the covenant and they are going to have to pay. They are not my children. But Hosea, in spite of that, led by the Spirit of God, tells Israel, return to the Lord. And the word return there is one of the basic words for repentance in the Old Testament. It's used over 20 times in Hosea. At least one occasion it's talking about God turning away from Israel. But it's an idea of repentance. And more specifically, did you notice that Hosea didn't just say return to the Lord. Hosea says return to the Lord your God. But God said, not mine. So how is Hosea Going to tell Israel, return to your God when God said, not mine. He wanted his people to understand something, and that's why he plugs in that weird little verse for the fatherless receive compassion from the Lord. Israel needed to acknowledge that God had in fact said you're not mine. But as soon as they do, the prophet says, but remember, God has compassion for the helpless, the orphan. So what's going on here? This was a call for them to recognize. There's nothing we can bring, God. There's nothing we can do to talk God into forgiving us. There's nothing we can offer Him that will earn this. They are understanding now for them to be forgiven, for them to be restored, they had to depend on God's compassion. The God who cares about the orphan will care for His orphan children and bring them back. And here's the amazing part of it. At the end of the text, God says, if they do that, I will love them freely, and I will turn my anger away from them. Again, please listen carefully. You see, our return to God finds him graciously waiting. We do not earn God's grace by repenting. God's grace can't be earned. But we need to know this. God's grace is not indulgence. God's grace is not just God playing a game. It is His open love for those who have responded to His call of grace. Dwayne Garrett has noted that a superficial understanding of justification by faith That has no place for repentance is alien to Hosea and, for that matter, to Paul and Jesus. Grace is free, but it is not cheap. And I remind you of the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've shared part of this with you before, a little bit more in depth today. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance, it is baptism without the discipline of community. It is the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. It is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without the living incarnate Jesus Christ. And Bonhoeffer would say, what we need today is costly grace. And remember, he wrote this in the late 30s and early 40s of the 20th century. Back when everybody thought every, you know it was just great. He said costly grace is costly because it calls to discipleship. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs people their lives. It is grace because it thereby makes them live. It is costly because it condemns sin. It is grace because it it brings the people uh, to justification, justifying the sinner. Above all, Grace is costly because it was costly to God. Because it cost God the life of God's Son, you were bought with a price. and Because nothing can be cheap to us which is costly to God. Above all, it is grace because the life of God's Son was not too costly for God to give in order to make us live. God did indeed give Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. And it is this costly grace that waits for God's prodigal children, God's children who have wandered away. When they come back, they find God ready to throw open His arms of grace to forgive and to restore. Our Lord waits for us. Because he loves us. Because he will not give up on his children. And so, you and I need to really know, we need to understand that God's grace can truly restore us. We could never earn the wholeness of God that he offers. And we need not. God forgives us and makes us whole because of a love that is freely given. It won't take many of you. Many of you learned very early on in our relationship how much music means to me. And I can't seem to think of a subject without coming up with a song. And one of my absolute favorite singers of of the contemporary Christian music in the 70s, actually into the 60s and 70s, I've heard him in the 70s, was by a guy by the name of Don Francisco. One of the most excellent musical storytellers you will ever hear. So many incredible songs. And he wrote an absolutely beautiful song. And uh, Dave and I share a characteristic we both tend to cry at songs. I wept the first time I heard Francisco sing. I loved you long before the time your eyes first saw the day, and everything I've done has been to help you on the way. But you took all that you wanted, then at last you took your leave and traded off the kingdom for the lies that you believed. And although you've chosen darkness with its miseries and fears, although you've gone so far from me and wasted all those years, even though my name's been spattered by the mire in which you lie, I'd take you back this instant if you'd turn to me and cry. I don't care where you've been sleeping. I don't care who's made your bed. I already gave my life to set you free. There's no sin you can imagine that is stronger than my love and it's all yours if you'll come home again to me. When you come back to your senses and you see who's been to blame, remember all the good things that were yours with just my name. Then don't waste another thought before you change the way you're bound. I'll be running out to meet you. Only turn around.
1: I don't care
0: where you've been sleeping. I don't care who's made you dead. I already gave my life to set you free. There is no sin you can imagine that is stronger than my love. And it's all yours. If you'll come home again to me. Today God is calling His church. And across this land, this call is going out. There are are people of God who are beginning to recognize God is calling us to return, to repent. Now for that to happen, we must have a real awareness of sin. We can't take sin lightly. We need to understand how crippling it is. We need to bring true words that are our confession before God our heart before the Lord. And we absolutely must throw ourselves upon the grace and compassion of God. So if you've wandered, if you somehow find yourself out of God's plan, and you're willing to look at that and understand it, we, must return to our Father. We must return to our Savior and Lord who gave Himself to us. We must follow the call of the Spirit, that still, small voice that starts saying, come home. And we sang a song, a snippet of a song that is calling us We each need to say, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in His arms. In the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms today. Looking at your life as honestly and openly as you can. Will you come home? Will you find the wholeness? this waiting for you. will you recognize I need an awakening not just this land I need we're gonna have a time of prayer if you feel so led you can pray here at the altar and then if you want to talk with me face to face we will do so at the end of the service but right now we need to open our hearts for We need to yield ourselves to His control. We need to hear. Return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. And let Him move in your life and change.